Hello, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Kodawari. Our guest for this episode is another musician, this time a double bass player named Keenan Zach. We've known Keenan for years. We've seen him perform countless times, hung out with him a lot, and he's a great player and an overall inspiring person. Keenan plays both jazz and classical music, and he's currently pursuing his doctorate at Stony Brook University. So in the first half, we talk about some aspects of jazz, like what is groove and how does it work, and how does one practice improvising for jazz. And then we also speak about the differences between jazz and classical music training, um, and, there, and how there can be a wonderful cross-pollination between the two. And in addition to music, Keenan also has years of experience with a disciplined meditation practice. He's been to meditation retreats. In fact, we recorded this one day before he was starting a nine-day online meditation retreat. Um, so in this second half, we went pretty in-depth about mindfulness, meditation, what is enlightenment, how to let go of things, and various other topics in that world of meditation that have helped Yanka and I with our well-being and Keenan as well. All right, before getting to the episode, let me remind you that uh, we now have timestamps included in the episode notes, so you can scroll to the sections that you want, or if you listen on our website, you'll actually be able to click those timestamps and be automatically taken to the moment. If you want to support the podcast, you can click the links to our donation page, make a one-time or a recurring donation through PayPal. As we develop, we'll find ways to create special content for our subscribers, but for now, your reward will be our loving gratitude, whatever that's worth. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and enjoy our episode with Keenan Zach. All right, Keenan, Zach, welcome to Exploring Cordovari. Hello. It's good to be here. What's up, guys? <laughs> How's it going? Pretty good. <laughs> I mean, we just said have to go. And <laughs> yeah, let's don't pretend like we didn't talk at all. Uh, I usually introduce people like a little bit in the introduction, sure. but like, can you just talk about who you are, what you do, music? Yeah. So all the my my name all is the jazz. All the jazz. My name is Keenan. I um am a double bass player by profession, and I uh, am a grad student at Stony Brook University. I'm a jazz musician mostly. Play a lot of classical music and other newly created music, mostly improvised music. Um, and original music is my passion. I love playing music that is newly created, preferably by people that I know and I'm friends with or that I've created myself. Word. Do you write music? Like, How, how much have you done that? Yeah, um, not a lot, but writing music has always been part and parcel of my learning of music. Like I think anything I've I've ever studied and learned, part of that process was also improvising with that material, which has led to composition of, of new things itself. However, like I don't develop it a whole lot. I think that's something I, I would like to do more of in the future is like really develop these ideas that have come to me through all of my studies and learning. Um, but that's like, that's definitely a different practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, improvising too, you probably, when, when you're practicing improvising, are you practicing writing in a sense, right? Sure. Sure. Sometimes, right. Uh, writing out I improvisational solutions, right? Like for instance, um, I currently study with Stefan Crump, who he's a jazz bass player 
I, one of the best in the world at what he does. It's really astounding um, what he's crafted as a musician and, and his concept for improvisation. Um, and I had a lesson with him yesterday, and I've been working on this concept, um, improvising over a, a 21 pulse pattern and breaking it up in different ways that still keep that the same skeletal structure mm -hmm. of, of the 21 pulses, which is derived from the specific melody. And I'm thinking of it in two different contrasting ways. And so to get better at improvising in the context of those 21 pulses, I do a lot of composition of like writing out ideas to concepts to play with and play over right. that I will then improvise with. We talked about that in um, the episode we did with the composer, you know, Nathan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And we were just saying any performer is part composer in in, the, in that they're, they're bringing Absolutely. something to the, the way table. They Absolutely. Or, yeah. Improvise. Even in classical music where we're more strictly following the exact directions on the page. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So you switched your DMA is strictly classical music or is it both? Uh, I am active in both the classical studio and the jazz studio. Okay, but, and 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 you're you're gonna have like I know um, my my baroque teacher when she did her DMA was like both early music and you know regular not baroque trumpet. So like, are you going to have both things or are you just kind it's of? It's only one DMA. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and any DMA is not actually specified. Sure. Like on the piece of paper, you know, whether you have a DMA in violin performance or, or, well, maybe, no, that I might be mistaken. Like my DMA will be in bass performance mm -hmm. and I'm just active in both studios. It's so. Cause like, how could you not be, right? They yeah, all know you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I mean, jazz is what I've come up on. So that comes more naturally to me and it's really fun. It's a wonderful outlet, but the classical study is what I'm trying to pursue and cultivate just to be a, a more well-rounded sure. bass yeah. player. Yeah. And, and we, I have this as a question later, so I might as well ask it now. What sure. have you brought in from the classical world and, or what do you think classical musicians could import from the jazz world? Like, do you think there's a balance where you can get the best of both worlds kind of thing? It's so deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's beautifully deep, like, there. And I find myself thinking about this from time to time and talking with my colleagues about it, especially in, in the jazz world and my teachers. Um, they are different. Like, they're radically different lineages. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, from those the varying tradition just the tropes of expression are different and the things that someone who's spent their life studying and training in classical music the things that they find satisfying and that they look for are not always inherently in jazz and vice versa if you're a jazz musician through and through you're born into a family that either was jazz musicians or listened to jazz music growing up like yeah you're going to have things that you hear that make you feel good that just aren't really present in the same way in classical music right mm -hmm. um that being said like but it's still music it's still rhythm and pitch 
but like how that gets treated is is definitely different and i think it's really filling for anyone who knows one of them to spend time thinking about and listening to and playing the other because it's all just informative yeah Mm -hmm. i think like what i've come to realize in working with blake hinson at stony brook um he's the he's the the bass teacher teacher, he's the classical bass teacher at stony brook um whatever you're playing to to have it dripping with intent Mm. and musical expression right like you have to think about it from as many dimensions as you possibly can from articulation and intonation vibrato all of these things but even the phrase itself like how is that phrase constructed where is it coming from where is it going how is all of this functioning in in a hierarchical level in context of the whole thing that you're performing and even if that's an hour-long Mahler symphony exactly exactly and now of course some of your job is not in the Mahler symphony the conductor is carrying most of the weight of that yeah yeah but it's still you the more aware you are of that larger structure the exactly. more exactly like uh, tracking intense. tracking the climax and yes. being able to understand where you are in relation to that and like right just fly that plane yeah. is this the climax or like a sub little climax exactly. in movement too exactly yeah. exactly um but my jazz teachers have talked about the same thing mark mark Elias is a bass teacher of mine. I studied with him when I was doing my master's at Stony Brook and he's still a mentor, teacher and friend to me, but he would always talk about these things. But in context of improvisation, that when you're spontaneously creating music or or even improvising over a tune or a structure, you have to have that same consciousness of where you are in the arc of what mm. you're playing and creating. Yeah. I see. I have a question that kind of goes along with what you asked, I think, Luke. Um, I was just curious about what are the like pros and cons of like each world or like what your jazz like upbringing, I would say, can contribute to like a being a classical musician, like being a sure. classical player. I was just curious. Oh, you about mean that. like the weaknesses? Like, yeah, but that's not necessarily weaknesses. I would think maybe more strengths. Like, what what are your strengths, you think? Because I feel like as classical players, we can be very boxed in, just very yeah. boring at times. Yeah. We can't really just get out of one simple, like, to one yeah. kind of solid Yeah, so, so a lot of things come, come to mind as you ask that question. And the first of which is, as a jazz bass player... Um, a lot of jazz is not performed in keys that are really idiomatic to the double bass. Mm-hmm. Like the bass is a C instrument, but as a jazz musician, I don't play in the key of C major a lot. Mm-hmm. So in learning jazz repertoire and how to play it and just performing a ton of it, <clears throat> I was per- playing in keys that are not necessarily easy to play in and also idiomatic for yeah idiomatic for the double bass but even like in jazz pedagogy they talk about if you're learning something learn it in all 12 keys so if you have a melody and like you just learn it in all 12 keys like 
you really learn how to map out Not the just like instrument. C, F, B flat, E flat. Oh, it's getting kind of hard. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly, exactly. And and so I haven't experienced that same um, openness to playing in all 12 keys in classical studies. Mm-hmm. But the contrary is that. So if you're, as I'm now learning r- literature written for the double bass, it's written in keys that the bass can really play in and sound really good in right. it. Create this expressive thing that can really captivate a listener's attention. Yeah, especially on trumpet. Uh, you can tell when a composer knows the, the key they're writing in. So certain certain keys, the trumpet just sits in. Mm-hmm. You get that resonant centered sound and other keys are awkward and you're just like why the fuck (laughs) like you know yeah Uh, yeah so i guess it's the same i mean what about violin like would you say certain keys sit well on the violin and other keys are just awkward like higher to sharp sorry it gets gets (laughs) getting really sketchy (laughs) right right intonation wise yeah yeah we like flats i I think trumpet keys e flat and b flat are just like money Mm -hmm, (laughs) everything mm -hmm. else is like uh, well we can also switch trumpets too so you can Ah, can switch your harmonic series and like then the whole game changes yeah that's part of why we do it sure not just for the easy fingerings although sometimes that's why yeah well you know if you got it um for non-jazz musicians or non-musicians generally can you describe like what groove is when i first started listening to jazz which was maybe I don't know the year, but let's say 10 years ago. And before that, I was in undergrad, didn't really listen to jazz, didn't understand it. And then I finally started to understand it. And when I did, I was just like, I would get entranced in like, oh, the groove, like the, what is that? What is the groove? Sorry, this this is a hard question. That's a hard question. And another thing that I think about a lot, um, and I think groove varies from jazz to like classical music or more, more pop oriented yeah. music. Like each has its own groove. So in one sense, groove is whatever that thing is that makes it feel good. Mm. Like the <laughs> the logic, if you're able to with your body or your ear connect with a logic in what you're hearing that's the groove and like whether it's conscious or subconscious like so that's a groove perhaps in its most broad abstract term um in in terms of like jazz music groove i think has come to be associated with a very consistent pulse Mm -hmm. that there's an underlying pulse that is generally unmoving so it it sort of creates this metric field, a metric scape or a metric lattice mm-hmm. that is underlying all of the musical elements that we experience. And then those musical gestures are laid on top. Sure. And when they lock into that metric lattice, then the groove feels really good. Right. Yeah. Or on the counter example, the groove is there in the rhythm section. So the bass and the piano drums, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you have Chet Baker just floating exactly. on top. Right seemingly independent from that yet right. also right but in it, tracking it so tracking it like, on the macro scale yeah, yeah yeah like it 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 isn't necessarily um computer driven it's not like everything lines up to the highest echelon right, right? like some of the the most exciting musical moments are when there's 
tug between sure. the yeah. musical voices, right? So like, yeah, a rhythm section that's like locked in and cooking along and then a soloist who's pushing and pulling against it like in just the right moments to create that excitement yes. i remember a, a, a teacher um maybe it was at some master class i forget but they said <laughs> about that that sort of tension of time and slowing down or or um creating a lyricism in how you play or even creating like a more complex rhythmical structure on top yeah. of that yes. groove yeah. that's yeah. what amazes me i mean yeah. i don't have the right terminology in jazz but what I'm hearing is like when someone, like there's a drum solo or something and it just gets really complex, but you can still hear that you groove feel, is like yeah. Yeah, yeah, coming yeah. through. It's just, I think, amazing. Yeah, it's they so said, satisfying. Um, yeah. They said, stretch the fabric of time without breaking it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's it's that idea of you can, you can have tension with your rhythm section if you're a soloist, but just don't break the connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, stretch yeah. it. Don't play break with it, the thread. Yeah. Yeah. To me, yeah. it's amazing how you guys can do that. Like, because I, I was obviously raised really in in a box, like classical conservatory type. So it's just so unbelievable how that's possible and how that just emerges naturally. You don't really rehearse for that. Um, I mean, you I, do probably, <laughs> but also... Well, I have practiced it so much and I still <laughs> sure. continue to practice it. And like, I I have explored it so deeply. I think for some people, it, it comes really naturally. I think it also like depends on your tradition and lineage as a musician. Um, so I, I have some friends that are gospel musicians. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to their church and I, I went for a period of time because I, I was really fascinated by just these, these human beings. I mean, I, I grew to love them and they became my family, but like observing them. So my, my good friend Byron played drums in his church and his dad was the preacher and his dad also played organ. Mm -hmm. So when his dad got off the organ to go and preach, Byron went to play the organ. And then his little brother went to play the drums. That's hilarious. And his little brother's like 10 when I first started going there. And playing with... Just killing it. Feeling yeah. like I... That my... Yeah, I wasn't experiencing in other musical uh -huh. outlets at that time. It was... Our, our last episode, some, um, Stephen was just talking about uh, growing up around gospel and how that's affected his um, feeling towards music, yeah. right? yeah. Yeah. Now the thing I love speaking of groove is also like specifically on bass where you can have this feeling of being on the front side of the beat. You're not just going like dun 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 mm -hmm. dun dun but dun 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 like like you're you're leaning forward yeah. in the time not yeah. quite rushing yeah. but yeah. um is that something you practice like like do you practice with a metronome clicking and then try to just kind of like lean forward how that's do you That's such how do a you, good question. That's a hard groove to get into y I think. Yeah. Um so I think a lot of for, for me right now that that is a, a reflection of personality mm -hmm. in a if I'm playing with a jazz big band like there are like 19 folks playing music at <laughs> once and their horn sections trying to play these lines in unison and it's really easy for that to not be on the front of the beat. Yeah. So it's like my job as a bass player to balance that by really playing on front of the beat. Like right. no matter where they're putting it, I'm putting it in front of it because it's like, it's this propulsive effect. 
Um, You're the fuel that keeps it going forward. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if like I just lay back and just try to make it feel good, then all of a sudden it's just like the air is let out of the balloon. Oh, and yes. everyone That's, starts yeah. looking at wow. you, the bass player, like you're not cutting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to call someone else because you, yeah, you know. Yeah. We, um, yeah. <laughs> but in smaller ensembles, that that still same play is, is in place, like between a bass player and a drummer. And so around groove, which groove could be thought of like that underlying consistent yeah. magnetism metric scheme, but the way that the musicians play around that is what creates the pocket. The pocket, right. The pocket. So I've, yeah. I use that word pocket in music a lot. The, yeah. The pocket of a note, right? Sure. I'll tell a student like, you know, they're playing a note on the trumpet, but it's not centered. They're not capturing pitch center. Mm -hmm. And I just say, settle into the pocket of the note. But then with pitch, it's funny we say settle into the pocket because a groove is actually a cut into something that you mm -hmm. should settle into, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know it when you do it. Yeah. And when you aren't in the groove, you're just like, what's up? Something's, yeah. wrong. Something's wrong. Turbulence. Turbulence. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like a plane. Exactly. When the plane is in smooth mid-flight and you're like, I'm on a plane? What? Like, I just feel smooth. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, like Chet Baker analogy. when he's like, you know, floating, it's like smooth as butter, you yeah. know? Is yeah. butter smooth? Is that a saying? I, I, I don't know. Butter <laughs> don't smooth. ask me. Okay. Butter is smooth. I have, um, so you talked about that, a little bit of improvisation and you practice that. Yeah. How, like, is there anything that you specifically do to, I mean, obviously it should be very natural, but you still practice anything you do to make that process more natural for yourself? Like, how do you practice improvising? Yeah, um, that's a, a great question. And I think there are a number of ways to go about it. Like, again, there are a lot of dimensions and I've had teachers that have showed me different ones. Um, but I think... The answer to your question will come from what I learned from Ray Anderson, mm. who's a master improviser and has been for decades. And he has built his philosophy towards life and his career like around this way of improvising. And, and for him, it's playing your emotions. So, so yeah. and, and that's that's a practice that I do frequently. When I, I'm really in doing it often, it, it's every day. And what I do is I, I just set a timer for 15 or 20 minutes and like I just play. And I, I don't, maybe I play something like a tune or a melody or something. Like I just allow whatever naturally wants to come through me to come through. And like sometimes that means that I, I'm not feeling or hearing anything. And then maybe I try something and, and respond and react to that. But I think like to get good at improvising, you're developing your relationship with yourself mm -hmm. as an improviser. With your deeper, wherever the ideas come from, which is a little mysterious, right? It, it can be. That's one thing. But even just getting comfortable with thinking of yourself as an improviser, like if, if you want to. So the short of it is, if how do you get good at improvising? Well, you improvise. Right, right. Yeah. You know, but and then those things that come up in the context of improvisation, like whatever emotions you might feel like 
this feels great. This is, I'm floating on top of the world. I don't want this feeling ever to stop. And and you play it and mm-hmm. it, it feels great. Or very often the contrary feeling comes up. We're like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. This is awful. Who is this playing the yeah, bass what right now? Is because he should just stop. <laughs> You never should have started, right? yeah. so but it's right. like so. So then it's it's developing. How do you communicate with that voice, and how do you really negotiate that, and and like learn to just love and befriend that voice and accept it as right. energy, and and when you can transform those thoughts and emotions into energy, and then channel that energy through your instrument that can yield a really compelling performance. Mm-hmm. Right, a truthful performance. Yeah, exactly, yeah. truthful. That was going to be my next question. Like, how do you quiet that criticizing mind, constantly being yeah. behind what you're doing? Yeah. But I think the key is to not quiet that, but maybe transform that into... I, like, that's I also part of your... That's part of it, right. And I, I've been thinking about this, that exact question for years. Yeah. And, and so much of my meditation practices have, have come from this. And like... I, I s- trying to develop emotional intelligence, right? Because the e- the easy answer is how do you quiet that critic? Well, shut up, critic, and like that sort of works. I mean, he doesn't go away though. But exactly, yeah. it's like you know, and it's, he, he might go into his room and pout for a while, and it, he's going to come back out. <laughs> it's exactly like dealing with a toddler. Yes, yeah. I mean that the ego is a mm-hmm. toddler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. With no shame either. Yeah. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, I use the example before, let's say in a relationship you have a fight, and then you're like, I'm just so mad, and then you kind of come out of the room, you're like, should we get pizza? I'm actually hungry. <laughs> like, yeah. Because, like, yeah. yeah. like, hunger is more important than whatever stubbornness yeah. you were holding on exactly. to. Exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. Like, that energy dissipated and transformed. Yeah. Now you're hungry. <laughs> or as soon as you eat pizza, you'll get angry again. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't believe you. Yeah. Uh, the inner critic, yeah. I, uh, Kenny Werner, do you know his oh, Effortless yeah. Mastery? Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a quote of his. So this would be a good good transition into meditation anyways. Sure. So um, can you just describe, I'll read the Kenny Werner quote as we get into meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you describe your relationship with meditation? Sort sure. of like how long have you been doing it? So I, I think I have always been drawn to those sort of mental exploratory practices like even as a a kid i remember being very young and like sitting down and trying to meditate before i i knew what meditation was and then like the with the advent of the internet like just trying to read about tantric practices and i mm-hmm. have no idea what i read or what i was like into but but the interest was there and then i in my late teens early 20s um i i came across things like that kenny warner book and like that was probably one of the first things that i connected with and developed like a practice of meditation right you know in, included in that book he has these guided or four guided uh, the, meditations the yeah. one, one of them is like five minutes another one's 20 minutes like there are a few of them and so i i really explored them and I, I was able to get into the practice of doing that daily. If I, if I remember correctly, those are more like just self-love type meditations, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. quieting that inner critic, right? Quieting the inner critic and, and trying to gain some harness around the thoughts 
and and outlining the the possibility that the world around you is is of your creating that if if right i one one quote comes to mind where it, in one of his guided meditations he poses the question like what if you are god mm, yeah, and what if every day for the next 10 years you told yourself i am great yeah. <laughs> How would the, your world change around you? And, and that was really transformative for me. And I, I, I thought about those things a lot. And even just that idea of like saying, I am great, like that, that's something that stuck with me. And it's so antithetical to Western cultures, which is like, keep an eye on that ego. Like, don't love yourself, hate, hate yourself, self-improvement. It's constant. a very sensitive balance. It can definitely go I think off. it's a balance. You don't, yeah. Yeah. you don't want to go around saying, I am great, therefore I don't need to self-improve or something, right? But, but you it also, really helps if you have, I don't know, the opposite side. Like, I personally have, like, low self-esteem. Well, that yeah. could, yeah. I could really benefit yeah. from that. Person. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And as performers, yeah. oh man, in the moment of performing, you are great. Otherwise, you're not in that space. He always yeah. talks about yeah. um, the the inner place where you're not attached to results. There's no fear, there's no expectation, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. just flow. Um, and I think when I first read his book, I was 24. I was, um, I think I was flying to San Francisco and I, I was like panic reading the book cause like I had to play a Bach cantata that I could not play. Um, yet and i was like on the way to go play it <laughs> and i was like panic reading like i'm not gonna land and go practice and beat my face up the day before the rehearsal i need to just approach this from a different place and yeah. it did work a yeah. little bit because yeah. i i abandoned the like uh like get after it harder approach and just thought i need to just totally change and the performance wasn't great it was okay but yeah things came out that otherwise wouldn't have, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But still, his, like, language of talking about the divine and the one and union with the divine, and that was all a little bit too woo-woo and wishy-washy for me at the time. But fast forward, like, three, four years, and I've gotten way more into mindfulness and meditation. And those words might invoke a, a weird religious meaning, but I don't think they're meant to be religious. That you Agreed. You can be totally secular and connect yeah, with the idea yeah. that God is inside of you. Yeah, yeah. That that there's perfection, like you don't have to get um, things from the external world and bring them in and, and exactly, seek them, that you exactly. can just stop and find perfection. And be perfection. Right. Allow the perfection that you are naturally as a human being to resonate in the moment. The quote I wrote down from Effortless Mastery um, it's uh, and he says right before this, even Christ said the kingdom of heaven lies within, you know, but uh, the quote, he calls it the inner space, like capital mm -hmm. I, capital mm -hmm. S. Mm -hmm. The inner space is a place where joy, pleasure and fulfillment, worldly and otherwise, are available in unlimited supply. Acceptance of these gifts allows the flow to increase. Performance given from this state, performances given from this state are said to be greatly inspired, leaving their audiences profoundly moved. A concert given by a performer who has attained this state is regarded as an event not to be missed. And yeah. then he says Bill Evans called this space the universal mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in classical music, certainly, we always connect when we see that. Yeah. Because you don't see it often, actually, that's, in that's classical true. music. Yeah. You yeah. see really high-level playing, 
but you don't see that union with the divine type playing yeah. Yeah. of like the ego is gone. You don't see them there. You just see free yeah. expression. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Those are the types of recordings that I always go back and oh, just yeah. want to watch a million well, times. Well, um, uh, I'll, I'll try to remember to link this, but that Scottish fantasy Stefan recording. Yeah, oh my amazing. God. Uh, what recording is this? I would love to see. It's this violinist. Um, he's very young, I think, in his maybe beginning of his 30s. His name is Stefan Yaku, Jaku, I don't know. And then he's playing Brooks Scottish Fantasy. And then you can just see the joy in the orchestra player's face, not the soloists. Like they're wow. just loving to be a part yeah. of that experience. Yeah. It's yeah. just the most amazing. You know how people incredible. describe like being around the guru? Like they're just radiating like a, a heat lamp, like radiating love. And like some <laughs> soloists seem to capture that yeah. when yeah. they play they're yeah. just like you're like yeah. what the whoa i'm in the presence of something right now and it's like gives you chills just to hear a phrase you know like when he phrases it's not a person making a phrase there's a phrase flowing it's through a him. phrase yeah. Yeah. it's a phrase yeah <laughs> full stop yeah. yeah damn um more zoomed out in meditation was there a moment of like waking up for you where you like like a, a shift in like like for me, I think I felt a moment where I didn't even know I could be distanced from my thoughts. I didn't know I could look at a thought from another place. And like I kind of think of that as like a stage of waking up where it doesn't mean I don't get lost in thoughts, but it, sure. it means that I know the difference between getting lost and having mindfulness. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was a particular event. I mean, you started young, right? So it's probably hard to... Yeah, it, it definitely is something that evolved over time. Um, I would say, like, recently there, there was a pretty stark change, though, in my, in my practice and, and just, like, in my emotional life. And that coincided with like, I, I changed my meditation practice and I, I started diligently practicing for an hour each day meditating. Mm -hmm. I had I'd been building up until that five minutes, 15, 20, 45, yeah. you know, and then just made that shift toward to a solid hour. Um, but also in that, like, I, I really started changing my life in other ways. Like I, I stopped drinking and smoking and mm -hmm. really just started to like live a cleaner be just very conscious of what i put into my body mm -hmm. for me like that sense of waking up evokes the idea that i i wake up to what is getting in the way mm -hmm. right like so in buddhism they talk about like the buddha mind is it's your natural mind as a human being naturally in in your most pure state you you have this empowered mindset and there are just these things that come to clutter it from the world that we live in from your the <laughs> life you were yeah. born into you know your family history and stuff and that has really come into focus for me of late as i i've come to realize how emotion and and trauma has stuck inside of my mind and then led to things that obscure the clarity or that awakeness. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and our instincts to 
do things that distract from that. Exactly. Like drinking and drugs exactly. of any kind yeah. are exactly. often a, I don't want to open that closet door of my mind exactly. and see yeah. the mess in there. Mm-hmm. Let's it's close that puppy right up. Distract <laughs> myself with anything else. Right. Yeah. But if you go through it, like you're going through a relative's like closet who died and you just have to just figure out what's in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, you can learn some shit about like, oh, wow, look at this old thing from my childhood. I didn't even remember was in there, yet was still influencing my behavior. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like there can be, um, what do they call it? Like memories that you didn't even know were influencing you that when you see them or, you know, a lot of people do psychedelics and these mm-hmm. memories come mm-hmm. right in front mm-hmm. of their eyes mm-hmm. like in the form of a demon or something, you know? Sure. And then they have to reckon like, oh, wow, like that happened when I was seven and I didn't even yeah. remember. Yeah. Yet it was fucking up every relationship I had or every this or that. Hello. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I suspect more people experience that than one would imagine. Sure. Mm-hmm. Or more people have those closets in their mental house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they either know it and kind of look, look away from it or they, they might have different don't. types of distractions like yeah. some people lean to different things i guess different tendencies that's true some people yeah. lean to i know drinking yeah. smoking like some people some just people consciously watch like, stupid tv shows yeah. some people right. always some people just need whistle. to hang out with people <laughs> right right yeah right yeah or hum all the time right <laughs> or 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 um anything that keeps you from stopping and looking right and and like yeah just silence and space it's such a difficult thing to do i cannot blame anyone for refusing to of course that it just takes so much to stare into that well it's so what what's the quote that jack cornfield he's a buddhist teacher always says um or he's quoting someone else when he says this i think it's a poet but it's basically um sitting down to meditate is like going to a really dangerous neighborhood who wants to do it alone you know like it's really difficult to to confront (laughs) a dangerous neighborhood at night by yourself right right you don't know what's going to jump out of the corner and there are plenty of other things you'd rather do (laughs) yeah yeah totally um how would you define mindfulness or is is mindfulness the type of meditation you do when you do that for an hour every day or do you have a very specific meditation method that's such a good question and i i'm realizing lately that i don't know (laughs) well is it like your own kind of self-created like conglomeration of all Um, different it it has been but recently i i'm trying to like uh, most recently i'm interested in zog chen meditation mahamudra and zog chen meditation you've done it though We've done it on the Sam Harris meditation app. Oh, is that the one yeah. where you try to detach from self? Like who is behind the eyes type of thing? Or Well, it's no, the, is, is Zochen where you do a lot of eyes open and you play with your visual field of subject, object kind of thing? Sure. That's I certainly see. all part of it. Um, Non-duality. I, so. I've, I've really, I just try to relax mm-hmm. when I meditate. Like I just sit and think, relax and mm-hmm. breathe. Mm-hmm. And then as thoughts come in, like, you know, noticing that I was thinking and then just going back to relax and really is that simple. rest, rest, <laughs> right. like rest is the word that has, I've been using a lot in my practice. Right. Um, the Joseph Goldstein always says meditation is so simple, but not easy. 
meaning that the directions, the instruction manual is like, mm -hmm. sit down and breathe. Yeah, yeah. And good luck. <laughs> you know, like, right, and, <laughs> and just don't stop, right? You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, our, our thoughts get in the way, like our ideas of, am I doing this? I'm not doing this. I'm fantasizing about meditation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's almost a sign that you're doing it, right? right? And that's just the next layer to overcome. And you can always meditate on whatever arises, including... Sure. I'm so bored meditating, or yeah. I can't wait <laughs> yeah. for the timer to go off. That's or, the oh. perfect thing yeah. to meditate on. Yeah, anything yeah. is perfect yeah. if it's what's coming up, right? Sure. Um, and people don't realize you're going to make it, what, four or five breaths at most when you first start. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then when you start to get up on the water skis, if you settle into those like long meditations, you might stay in that mindful place, meaning you're not carried off and lost with the chains of mm -hmm, thoughts, but mm -hmm. you're actually seeing them arise from seemingly nowhere mm -hmm. and pass away into seemingly nowhere, the void, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. and you go, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> I didn't think that. I saw that come into my yeah. space of consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Whereas when we're distracted, we actually think we think our thoughts. Was that a sentence? We think we think. <laughs> we think we think. We, because we, we're so self-identified with them. Right. I actually think. I'm, th that I'm thinking, I'm thinking yeah. it. Right. It's, it's yeah, we, we take ownership, ownership. over oh, it. Yeah. Instead of it, it like being something that just arises because it needed to arise. Right. Yeah. Like I, I think another thing that helps me in meditation is just accepting that whatever comes up it came up because it needed to come up sure. and it and it's perfect because it needed to come up just like the improvisation thing where you're just like yeah. it came so it is it, you know? exactly and any thought contrary to that is just judgment and a creation of a dualistic system that doesn't really have any place right. in there <laughs> there's just everything yeah and what came was part of everything exactly and me to say that's good or bad or hip it's a hip lick for me to play that or right, not. It's right. just more judgment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. you can go, oh, the judging mind, the judging mind. And, and then you can let and, that go. Yeah. Yeah. So in the patterns of, of let's say you've meditated for a, an hour every day for a year, where, do you, where does that lead? Like, what do you consider progress in meditation? Like compared to when you, let's say, first started this project of upping your meditation game and where you are now? I don't know, when did you up it? Was it like two years ago or? About two and a half years ago. Okay. Um, it, just an awareness of being able to have awareness of where I am in my meditation. Am I thinking? Am I not thinking? Am I tired? Am I drowsy? Am I feeling dullness right now? Am I anxious? Am I, am I crying? You know, I, I yeah. mean like, am I laughing? Right. You know, Am I in a goofy mood? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so awareness and a comfort of that and an ease of being able to really accept that. And, and outside of meditation, what I, I observe and attribute to my meditation practice is just a patience, a patience with myself and with the situation that's happening around me. And I, I think a better understanding of how my emotions are at play in any sure. given situation. Like for instance, last summer, I bought a mattress and I got it at a discount because I said I would go pick it up in Bridgehampton or something. Okay, yeah. And so my dad and my dad went with me. You know, I, I love my dad and we took his really old minivan out there. No AC, it's July. I got oh, this gosh. thing like literally a year ago, hottest <laughs> week of the year. 
and and we're driving to Bridgehampton and he's saying he's asking me like well so which way should we go should we take the highway or should we take the back roads and I was like let's just take the highway we'll probably get there faster and then he's like well but I I like taking the back roads it's a nicer drive I was like but it's just it's gonna take longer he's like well you know we might sit in traffic uh-huh. and my dad hates sitting in traffic well, just probably get a car with ac then. yeah <laughs> <laughs> just the thought of sitting in traffic like is an emotional rise for him mm. and in experiencing that conversation with him like i i sort of recognize that i have practiced the skill of being able to be in in traffic and be like well i'm just in traffic and i can accept this or not like i can be really upset and and fume internally and boil or i can just like accept and be like well i'm gonna be late and that might suck but it's really not that. it's funny you say that because we've said so many times to each other how the car is the perfect place to practice oh yeah yeah. i think i've written that a few times in different blog posts like it's the it's a science experiment of of emotions. <laughs> yeah, 100%. and then you got other people on the road, and like someone cuts you off, and you yeah. feel that rise, and yes. then you're like, like you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm yeah, like, and then you're today. like, well, okay, just and there's the um, the psychological concept of window of tolerance, and it's the idea that when we're we're satiated, we're not hungry, we're not thirsty, we're not sick, we're not tired. We have these big windows of tolerances. So even the guy cutting you off, giving you the finger, you're you're going 10 miles over the speed limit in the left lane passing someone and they need to give you the finger. And in a big window of tolerance, nothing really disturbs you. It's like a little blurb. You're like, what just happened? But when you're hungry and late and mm-hmm. like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> your window Great. is shrinked. So the yeah. smallest disturbance causes you to get actually angry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in the car with someone... Well, you can't be angry at the person who just passed you, so you make a nasty oh, comment yeah. to the person to your right or something. Right. And then uh. if you're not mindful, you don't, you actually convince yourself that you're mad at the person to your right. Yeah. Even though it was just energy. And if you right. could have absorbed it and let it arise and pass away, no harm done. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Maybe to your body, stress levels, but, you know, how can we not have something happen, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> um the idea would be is anger going to never arise again because you meditate probably it, no it will absolutely yeah it, like medi- anger is a natural emotion and it's yeah. a yeah. tool every emotion is a tool right you know it's just when we right. get swept away you can either it. bash people with the tool or fix things and, exactly yeah, yeah. or use it as creative energy yeah. right yeah i've thought about that with anger a lot integrated anger makes you strong mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. If you're not wise to your anger, you do and say things that your later self will regret. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're even willing to look at it, right? Yeah. If you have the capacity to look at it. The courage to look at it. Like, oh my God, I've said some stupid things when I was angry, you know? (laughs) Especially when I was younger, I used to get in like political fights with people. It's like, what good is that? You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You're not going to change their mind. Certainly not if you're angry and making them feel stupid. So what is this really about? (laughs) Like, I love seeing people have strong disagreements in public and you can tell when they're meditators because they're in an intense part of a back and forth on some news show and they go <laughs> and you can see them go whoa yeah like here, harness it yeah like there's a storm here let me not look like ben affleck on bill maher that one time where he, he looked like he was on coke honestly <laughs> uh, i have no idea uh, there's a famous it. like just type into youtube ben affleck freaks out and oh, it's the okay. first hit <laughs> he just got like insanely angry and started calling somebody and they were everyone was like whoa 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 that's not what just happened like you yeah. know yeah but you could see he got 
swept up in the wave infuriated. of infuriated. Yeah. 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 Crazy. What what do you think of enlightenment? Have you like thought about that word? I mean, you you've taken oh, yeah. a lot of Yeah. Yeah, classes I, and stuff, right? Like Sure. I, I've read a lot of books. I, I'm just getting to like a place in my studies of Buddhism, like I'm actively seeking a teacher. Mm-hmm. Like I have realized that I I have a great practice, like I'm very disciplined and diligent, but like if I if I really want to do this with truth, then I, I need a teacher. You know, like I, I may have come to a, a point where I can like go no further without like really studying and learning from uh, someone who's mastered this and like of a lineage but i though that word enlightenment is really interesting and i think like it it has a lot of baggage that's a very loaded term yeah but in its most simple term i think like enlighten so the lighten part and an, an enlightened being is one who has put down all of the heavy karmic baggage that they carry <laughs> and are yeah. lighter <laughs> yeah and they can they have that lightness in every situation yeah in every moment they're they're lightness, not marred yeah. by heaviness damn i by, never thought about the word yeah, as like the lightened part yeah, yeah with like really nice light lightness yeah. <laughs> yeah not heaviness it's funny because you know vipassana meditation which is basically just your mind basic mindfulness meditation they call it the Vipassana facelift when people come back from the 10-day retreats. And this photographer did an art project where he had um, he took photographs of a bunch of people before the Vipassana retreat and then after. It's insane. He, the, the, the first, before pictures, their eyes and face are bagged down yeah, with the weight yeah, of the world yeah, on them. Yeah. And afterwards, they have this brightness and buoyancy, buoyancy and lightness in their yeah, face. Yeah. 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 And you know it when you see it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I never thought about the the lightning. You're you're you don't have the burden of all the things you carry. Yeah, like you were able to let them go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I and like I have experiencing that in in so many dimensions in my life, and actually, like through the pandemic, I have come to realize just how much of that emotional stuff i i have had carried and and still carry Mm -hmm. but it's like having that time of just being home like i I was able to double down on all of my self-care practices meditation and just like silence and to silently to hear how i engage with myself yeah when there's no one else around a bunch of distraction was jobs and gigs every night or something really informative and really healing and like I, there are huge things in my life, emotional things that like I was able to let go of or or put down or start to put down in some way. And like it, it really feels just like much lighter as a being. Mm-hmm. I think people generally have done one or the other, it seems, during the pandemic. Like they've either gotten worse mental in their mental states and their mental baggage or if they had an idea of like meditation and and the 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 benefits that that it can bring they realized this is the perfect time and a lot of these meditation teachers switch to sort of at home retreats like mm-hmm. you're doing now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um uh, jack cornfield i almost did it but of course somehow made an excuse like oh well i, I teach on thursday so i can't fit that in you know <laughs> Um, cause part of me was one. scared to yep. commit yeah. to sitting yeah. five hours a day, <laughs> yeah. you know, cause I normally oh. do 20 minutes, let's say, <laughs> you know, 
or five minutes or, you know, depends on the day. Some days I'll, I'll remember like, oh my God, I did not do, I did not find time to sit today. Let me yeah. just set a yeah. two minute timer. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. even two minutes later, I'm like, like I forgot about that deeper presence. Yeah. I was just yeah. caught up in stuff, you know? Um, so going back to the concept of enlightenment, a lot of people think of that as like an arrival point or like a moment where it just happens. So you would describe it as like a process, right? Where you get rid of those baggages. Well, I, of, I, I, certainly. Or certainly did you a feel process. a certain moment where you're like, oh, I'm, I don't have any baggages now. Like, obviously that's not. I think. It's like th- traveling on an airplane are. without baggage. You're like, oh, I feel so free. <laughs> so, it's a one day flight. You know, like, <laughs> Um, I, I would see that in, in two dimensions, like in enlightenment can be something that you feel in an instant and like can come and go like in flashes Mm -hmm. of, of brilliance. Mm -hmm. Um, but for someone who's practicing the path of Buddhist meditation and, and with a, a master teacher, the teacher will at a certain point impart into them empowerment mm-hmm. and that would represent like an, an arrival point certainly like an earned cultivated arrival point but like i mean that's well beyond anywhere i am i forget now. the sect of buddhism but it, there's a sect that calls enlightenment the final disappointment <laughs> and i love that that's phrasing great. of it because it's like it's not the top of a mountain because when you get there you're like oh wait there's nothing here it's just the top yeah. of a mountain yeah i'm still yeah. me you know yeah. so yeah. You, you finally get there and you think i've achieved enlightenment and it's like what what what's next yeah because and, yeah. and that's the the mind right it's always wanting what's next it's and never- and realizing that the mind it's the mind that wants the more yeah and, and what is next but happiness that's, that's is always a, right that's around a the cre- corner that's a you... creation yeah it's that, a fabrication yeah, yeah. and a right. construction we were um reading this article by jack cornfield i'll link it um it's called enlightenments yeah and he says so many problems arise when we put one idea to a word like god it's like it's not about god it's about gods it's not about enlightenment, it's about enlightenments. There's so many ways mm-hmm, to express mm-hmm, this like mm-hmm, transcendent, mm-hmm. Um, what's the idea? The word about literally means around, right? You can talk about God, you can talk about enlightenment, You can meaning you can talk around it, but you can't just like penetrate into it. Because they're words. Yeah, those are just they, mouth we, words. We can sounds. talk about their sounds, yeah. yeah, that we have created a logic for and somehow understand each other right. right but and i I've, I've the most recent book i read in buddhism really talked about that that words can't exactly what you're saying like oh words i can never replace this thermos with words right. no matter how much i tell you about it if this wasn't here I could tell you about how it's yellow and like this tall and how the top is constructed but it's not the same as feeling right. the thermos <laughs> or seeing me walk in with it. Your mental concept of thermos is yet another layer. Even thinking about it is yeah. <laughs> not the same as... That's emptiness, yeah. right? Like yeah. the Buddhist concept yeah. of like nothing is intrinsically a thing. Right. There's just everything. Right. And then right. We, we make discrete objects out of the world by saying we care about this or that. And nothing is experienced twice. Mm-hmm. Like it's always new. Every time you blink and open your eyes and look at this thermos, like it's another thermos at another point right. in space and time. Yeah, very true. That's the same with you, right? Your identity is never 
actually consistent across mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. In every moment, you're different. You know, like, it's a different incarnation. Like, yes. however small you can cut it up, that's how many. No man steps mm-hmm. in the same river twice. Exactly. Kind of idea, exactly. right? Exactly. So the the kind of enlightenment I love that you just said, like before the lighten up. Yeah. Um, that seems to, to sync up more with, so in this article, Jack talks about these different teachers and some versions of enlightenment are about uprooting your personality so that negative mind states no longer come up. Mm-hmm. And he said that one's pretty rare. He's met some people that he thinks have a, yeah. found that, but yeah. the more common one is the shift in identity. So the things like jealousy, anger, negative mind states still come up sure but you're not identified with them because you become that which is aware of those things mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so much truth in that the guy's name is ajahn shah have you heard of him so um he describes enlightenment as the wisdom of letting go and he says it's available in any moment yeah so he says if you let go a little you'll be a little happy if you let go a lot, you'll be a lot happy. <laughs> if you let go completely, you'll be completely happy. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and it's like your baggage thing of enlightened. It means maybe the 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 way to lighten up is to yeah open your hand and let the baggage <laughs> it, fall to the ground. The thing that you're carrying. Yeah. yeah. Imagine if you're at the airport carrying all your bags and you go, wait a second, eh, I don't care about the stuff in these bags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. just walk. You're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, yeah. <laughs> flying's not that bad. There's this uh, f- like parable I, I've read in a couple different Buddhist books that two monks are walking through, walking down a path, right? And they, they come across a, a young woman in a beautiful kimono and, and this is the rainy season. So, there's a huge puddle that they have to walk across mm-hmm. or like a river. And, and she, she's really hesitant to because she doesn't want to ruin the clothes she's wearing. So, one of the monks just picks her up. They walk through the the river and puts her down and, and they, they walk on their way, right? And it's like a master monk and a student and they walk for like five more miles and the student finally says to the master, like, I, I just have to say it, you know, as monks, we're not supposed to interact with people like that. Like, mm-hmm. I can't believe you did it. And and then the master monk said, you're still carrying that? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I put that down five miles ago. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's in the past. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, uh, Sharon Salzberg calls this the letting go muscle. Mm-hmm. And I love the terminology of when you think of letting go of something, you think of it as like not doing something, right? But the idea of like a muscle is something that when you use it and work it out, it gets stronger. So if the letting go muscle is a muscle, you can get better at letting go. The release muscle. The release muscle, yeah. even better. Yeah. 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 The idea that... <clears throat> Wow. You can have anger in your mind and go <sighs> and then let it go. And when it's gone, it's really gone. Yeah. You know? And it's the yeah. best feeling ever. Oh, it's the so moment good. you you feel so powerful when you realize that you can do it. I mean, I think yeah. you respect yourself more. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a great feeling. I, I've been thinking about that in a certain way. And like in, in terms of people who have experienced like PTSD, mm-hmm. like coming from war. Like, say you have, you experience an event that the nature of that event is your, you feel emotion at a level beyond anything you've ever felt before. So, your new threshold of emotional availability has been expanded by some degree. And if that's a traumatizing event, 
you don't know how to experience positivity at that level, but your your consciousness still craves that that full mm. bandwidth of emotion, but you can only cling to that, the trauma, like the trauma is what remains and then what we carry with us. Yeah. Because it's like, we're still trying to grasp that, that level of emotion. Like, and I think about it in terms of like an, an atom, mm -hmm. like proton, nuclei, uh, neutron and electron, right? So yeah. in the nucleus, protons and neutrons, and then electrons hover around, and if you inject energy into that atom, you create an ion where the electron is then it, it's circling the nucleus, but at a, a further level, right? With more energy and it's actually like coming further away from the nucleus. Like yeah. I think our emotional field functions in a similar way. It, you mean it brings us farther from who we are at our nucleus kind of thing? I, I think it expands. Well, it, it's more of like a valence level of emotional capacity. Oh, I see, I see. And if you're, you experience a traumatic event that suddenly your emotional capacity is injected with this energy and is now much more vast than it was, but all that's filled that new vast space is this trauma. Right, mm -hmm. unprocessed. Like, it, un exactly, yeah. and it, it needs to get processed in right. order to put that down. But I with see. the PTSD example, the processing is too hard because every time you process it, the original emotions yeah. come back yeah. with it. Relive it. Yeah. And that's where these like MDMA therapy and other psychedelic therapies, mm -hmm. and they're in like phase three trials at Johns Hopkins. Like yeah. mm -hmm. the idea yeah. with the um, MDMA is <clears throat> on that drug, you can be talking to a therapist. And the, the example they showed in a documentary was someone from um, either Afghanistan or Iraq said like, I blame myself for the death of like the, the, my, my friend and, and, soldier that was in my unit and then they were able to work through that and like realize oh it's not my fault like mm -hmm, people die mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. but anytime he thought about that memory not on ecstasy was would trigger the yeah, panic attack yeah, right yeah yeah so it's like um some of this is not in our control right or the the amount of control we have is questionable sure mm -hmm. uh, we have some maybe I, yeah. But so much of it is just the the subconscious just bubbling on without us. Yeah, turning I, I away. would imagine that like the the talk therapy that goes hand in hand with the MDMA therapy is like crucial, oh, crucial. Yeah. right? And like, all the therapists have to be go through the process of taking the drug and and to understand yeah. it. Yeah, like, and I really yeah. think that's a smart yeah. idea. Yeah, absolutely. And like, the same thing with the psychedelic mushroom trips. Um, they they kind of decide based on your condition which version would be better for you, but it's all very guided. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's the yeah. same thing with like a shaman. Sure, if you're down in South America yeah. doing it, right? Yeah. The idea is like, yeah, I've gone into the underworld. I know how to navigate it. Yeah, and and I'll I'll keep you Can safe. Guide you through the mm -hmm. underworld of yeah. your emotions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so many of these meditation teachers um, have a lot of experience with psychedelics because it sends you to that place of ego dissolution and these deep states of meditation, but it just sends you there. It's it's just like the ticket for the roller coaster. There you go, boom. Whereas sometimes it might take years of meditating and slowly sure. changing how you use your attention to to experience something even close to that. Yeah, I don't, but I don't know how much I buy it. 
Like, so today, um, I, I we had bass studio class for Stony Brook with Blake. And at the end, Blake was like, hey, Keenan, why don't you tell everyone what you're doing next week? And I was like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm doing a nine-day meditation retreat. And one of the guys wrote into the Zoom chat, is it an ayahuasca retreat? <laughs> like, and we all got a good chuckle out of it. And then, it, you know, that was right at the you end of the meeting. Back, so. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so the meeting ends, and I, and I think about it, and, like, that was just really clarifying of of western culture of this wanting it now mm-hmm. i want it i want to take this drug so that i can i don't have to meditate for ten thousand hours sure. i can just oh. take this drug and i'll be further down the path but like i i think well, when you i mean the you, fact that is commercialized and then there are flights and you know oh packages for sure. ayahuasca the complete yeah. package yeah. For the, the ayahuasca. Exactly. exactly i get a t-shirt yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah there's a gift shop on the way out yeah. don't forget our hashtag yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The second an ayahuasca place has a hashtag, like I'm, I'm gonna question what's yeah. going on there. Yeah, but I mean, the, it's against the purpose. Obviously, exactly. that's what I was trying to say. The the counter argument to that would be so many people would try meditation and give up because they never get to a, a there. They they never have an experience that tells them there's something there to be found. I wouldn't say psychedelics send you down the path. They kind of bring you to a, a, a an aerial view where you can see the path maybe or what I but, would say that there's no actual there to get to mm-hmm. speaking of enlightenment being the final disappointment that you yeah. write like yeah. there's and, no and arriving the, the idea that the enlightened mind is already naturally within us in every present moment right mm-hmm. and that's the the but you know i i mean like the the MDMA therapy, especially in ayahuasca trips, like I, I, I don't want to in any way make it seem like I don't think that's valid or has its time and its place. Like I certainly do in, in cultures and everything. And But maybe it's, it's a way of allowing whoever takes it to relax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, there might be so, such strong holding exactly, happening exactly. for some people Clinging to like yeah exactly and and squeezing yeah. and just like this inability it, like if if you pinch a nerve in your back and mm-hmm. like for days you're just like lied up on the couch why can't i relax i don't yeah. know yeah so i'm sure that's helpful for yeah, the, like it's absolutely. a nice little push it's it's just Probably. like it it unblocks something mm-hmm. it unblocks something um sam harris has an article on his website called drugs and the meaning of life and his argument is essentially like as a very skeptical, you know, just materialistic, grounded kind of mind, he's not sure. And he he's made his life basically about meditation, more or less. Like he um, went on three year retreats at one point, um, or or you know, over the course of three year, did a bunch of three month sure, retreats with sure, breaks in between. Sure. And he said he only got convinced to go into that direction because of his experience with LSD that he had such a shift of what he thought he was or his mm-hmm, mind was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then thought, okay, I have to traverse this territory now and, and yeah. see what's there yeah. as a sober being. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So it's definitely not a replacement, but I think it might be. Um, it can be a tool. A tool that pushes you to, a, if you're stuck in one place and you can't get unstuck or trauma is so buried in the subconscious that your conscious mind can't access your four-year-old memories, but people have mushroom trips and then say they confronted the exact thing. And, and they have that moment after the mushroom trip of like, oh, like I'm free. I, mm-hmm. I don't have the baggage. So 
I, I definitely am more of a fan of this like guided therapy sure, version of it sure. because it's much more careful. It's therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And it's it's aiming at healing and it's yeah. for people who have PTSD or some yeah. diagnosable trauma. Um, I would say probably doing it on your own is much more. Well, you, then it, it's like the question of self-medication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's generally not good. And of course, people take psychedelics just to party. And like, yeah, yeah. my interest in them would never be as a party drug, but more as like a, let me go into the woods and just see yeah. what's up. You know? I mean, micro dosing is interesting. I, I had a friend who was into that and like, he, he, he seemed to navigate it really well, mm-hmm. you know, but probably not. You're playing me. with fire a little bit though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because then I was like, just researching that though. Like if you, I think really dose it well and like really experiment, like I was reading this article, this person did that for a year, but, try to like dose it differently like micro but mm-hmm. like just different ratios and when you find the right balance i think it really has a lot of yeah. positive effects and if you can measure the right exact amount of like yeah. how much you're taking every day i think you you entrain yourself into a more positive mindset mm-hmm. you but create wonder, a groove a groove yeah. wow. <laughs> talk about music we just had an aba back to the beginning <laughs> form here um so that's a good time to uh, get into some bonus questions if you're down sure these are like they can be as fast or slow as you want they great. can be three words they can be whatever great uh what's the most intense experience you've had in meditation do you can does one pop to mind like where where it was like a oh my gosh that was a crazy day or I have just cried my eyes out and like convulsed in fetal position in just an outpouring of emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, bawling release. I think it's so. It, and it, it was, it was a release. Yeah. I mean, and it, it was so exhausting, but it, it was a, it was a very deep release. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, um, Dan Harris, who wrote the book Ten Percent Happier, mm-hmm. he he was in one of the chapters. He was at one of these ten day Vipassana retreats, and he said he didn't even see it coming until like five seconds before, and he started sobbing. And he's like, "Oh my god, I'm the guy at this meditation retreat that's on the floor sobbing." And everyone's <laughs> like, "The fuck's up with this yeah. guy?" <laughs> um, but he's yeah, like he said, it, the the feeling after it is just yeah, like a thunderstorm comes through. Yeah. Causes like the convulsions are intense, right? right? Yeah, it's, it's so, yeah, visceral. I mean, and there's no controlling it. And I, I mean, I guess you can, but like in, in those moments, I, I wanted to go mm-hmm. deeper with it. It's like, yeah. I want, you want to let that come up. I mean, it's a deep sadness about <laughs> whatever, right? Yeah. But I feel like for me, like, I don't understand where the depth of the sadness goes, but you can tell there's a deep sadness yeah. at existing, you know, for, for me, just like it's, it's related to trauma in, in my bloodline. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so I, I really believe trauma can be passed from generation to generation. Definitely. It's scientifically proven yeah. that well, you can carry trauma yeah. from your genetics. Yeah. Like stress. Um, sure. Just elevated stress elevated. affects mm-hmm. the next generation. Yeah. Like I and I think on a physiological level, but then naturally on an emotional level, like if your parents suffered abuse and trauma in their life, naturally they're going to view the world through a, a worldview that's shaped by that and that's going to affect you as yep. being their 
their offspring. Their unconscious behaviors from whatever they experience yeah. get imprinted onto you. Yeah. yeah. And and Crazy. like so that that was a direct relation for me with those really emotional um releases. That's intense, yeah. Yeah. You said you read a lot of books. If you could gift a book to everyone you know, what would it be? Um Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart. Okay. I'll look that up. I don't <laughs> Yeah, it's real good. Um When Things Fall Apart. Okay, there's a book called Things Fall Apart that's not about that at all. That's yeah. by yeah, yeah, yeah. that's uh, you a, know what that's a novel. Yeah, yeah, that's a novel. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I read a, something a Chebe like that. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do we have to read that for undergrad? Is that how I know it? Or am I just totally blurring? Yeah, maybe you read it in high school. Okay. Yeah. I read huh. it after I read Heart of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I read it and someone was like, you should read this because okay. it's like the contrary story of what life is like, like colonialism in Africa. Things What's fall the um, gist of the... So, uh, Joseph Conrad... Um, oh, no, I mean the, oh, the other book that you said... Uh, the you Pema Chodron? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll um, save Conrad for yeah. another podcast episode. <laughs> um... So Pema Chodron is an American Buddhist nun, and it's it's about compassion and dealing with your emotions and cultivating this place of unextinguishable, inex, inexhaustible compassion for yourself and for all all beings, right. mm -hmm. and like how to really manifest that in more detail. I mean, she's a brilliant writer. Yeah. It's so good and easy to read. Like, yeah. The, the, the theme is, right, you have to have compassion for your own bullshit first before you could ever exactly. have it for someone exactly. else. Because it radiates outward. Yeah. yeah. And you know yourself better than you'll ever know someone else. So if you can't manage to find that place in, for your own yeah. thoughts or actions, it's going to be really hard to manifest that for someone who you don't have the internal motivation exactly. structures yeah. and all exactly. that. Yeah. True. Um, what's your best memory of playing a concert? And what made it so good? Uh, the first thing that came to mind um, was a concert that I, I played with Mikhail Darmany and Allison Rowe and Brian Back. And we it, it was just in January and it was a house concert. It was at Evelyn Bromley's house. Uh, wait, was I there? You might have been there. I think I was there. And I, I mean, it, it was just great. Like Mikhail and I played a duo and then they played a, a trio and then I played a trio with Mikhail and Allison and, and it, it was just wonderful. Nice. Um, yeah. It just nice. felt like you were, things were right. The, the musical vibe was right. I, I mean, these are people that I love, you yeah. know, so <laughs> playing with people you love. And also I, I think like being a professional musician you play a lot of gigs yeah and gigs are the word work gig. Yeah, it's yeah. work right and like sometimes that work feels really good and it feels great and it's really rewarding but like i've just come to appreciate concert sure. like when there's an audience full of people that are there and they're offering themselves to you to be moved yeah mm -hmm. and if as a performer you're able to like ride that and move with them and be moved yourself that's just those the most. those concerts at evelyn's house have that vibe regularly because yeah. the, the people it, this is a small house i mean it's a big house compared to any house i've lived in but i mean uh, <laughs> it's a small room it's a small, small room, living room very yeah. intimate very intimate uh -huh. um and she has a nice piano, so she puts on these concerts there. And 
that yeah the audience loves the audience it they're loves it. they're yeah. there to feel good yeah That's and yeah so it's it's just super encouraging and it's just fun and and there's yeah. like a wine and cheese thing after it yeah. and there's just good vibes going around <laughs> exactly. there yeah exactly um all right last one what can you remember about the time you laughed the hardest oh. anything popping in um a couple things like I can remember being a kid with my cousin and my sister and just laughing, like yeah. cackling like hyenas. At nothing. And, <laughs> at, at nothing. And like you you get drunk off of that laughter. Yeah. <laughs> and like it just builds and cycles and you just start laughing and, and then something stupid happens and you laugh even harder. And yeah, it yeah. just sets it all off again. And yeah. Just like, yeah, crying, laughing. I love that feeling. Yeah. It's funny though, <clears throat> you were saying about bawling, crying crying laughing and bawling crying are not so unrelated yeah they're sort yeah. of like the brain's reaction sure. to a, an intense storm of energy you yeah. know but yeah like the same muscles actually can yeah. when you're right. crying you're like oh, I, I can't, can't stop it. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna be myself <laughs> but i love that feeling let's say it happens oh, yeah. i don't know it depends but <laughs> once a month would be nice i can't say it happens that much yeah where you're you've lost it crying you know laughing i mean yeah yeah we uh, do that once in a while once like in a you while. and i yeah. just i don't know nowhere. how it happens but yeah, we just yeah. maybe some fairy so flew beautiful. into the apartment and yeah. blows a little like you know yeah. tripping dust in our nose or something but yeah. you just like you stop you're all right we're good we're good yeah. <laughs> and then Start somebody again. just goes <laughs> yeah. <know>. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah totally awesome the best. uh well thanks for coming on dude yeah. It's been a real pleasure, guys. It was exactly as good as I thought it would be. Meditation, Sweet. jazz, all the all the all the good <laughs> stuff. Any anything you want to point people to? Do you have like a website or anything like that? Or are you just I like don't. whatever? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Just feel good. Uh we'll post some links of you playing something. Sounds even, great. Like yeah. you're on YouTube somewhere, I'm sure. Somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> you're all over the place. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Yep. Yanka, come on. Oh, bye. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.